Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Third John, verses 1 through 4. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The World Cup just concluded a few weeks ago. Uh, if you don't follow soccer, which is probably a lot of us, uh, it is the biggest sporting event in the world. It is bigger than the Super Bowl, bigger than the World Series. Uh, it is the big event. And um, we just had what is arguably the greatest World Cup final in history between Argentina and France. Uh, it was a phenomenal game. Uh, spoiler alert, Argentina won. Um, Argentina's best player is Lionel Messi. He's... 35 years old, he is tiny, but he is fast as lightning, and he is a wonder to watch on the soccer field. He's known for his quickness and his precision, uh, but 35 is, is getting pretty old for soccer players. Um, the older you get, the slower you get. Um, and since the World Cup finished, there's been a picture that's been going around on social media, and it's a picture of, of this 12-year-old boy and Lionel Messi in a bookstore at, at some meet-and-greet autograph book signing. And <clears throat> this little boy's name is Julian Alvarez. And he got to get a picture with his hero. I don't know what was said between them at this meeting, what sort of encouragement that Messi might have given to him, this little boy. But now... Julian Alvarez has a picture with Lionel Messi holding the World Cup trophy because he is one of his most important teammates. 22-year-old Julian Alvarez uh, is now World, Trump, World Cup trophy winner, uh, teammate to his idol and his, uh, his hero. And it's stories like these that speak to the positive power that encouragement can have. Uh, on, on a person. Now imagine that John Piper or John MacArthur or Elizabeth Elliot or Jen Wilkin, whoever your spiritual hero might be, wrote you a letter telling you that they'd heard about your life and it brought them joy to hear how you're living, the things that you are doing, how you are serving the Lord. Imagine that they affirm the time and the effort that you make to serve your local church. That it's been all worthwhile, all the sacrifice, all the time spent. 
Imagine that this person that you hold in such high esteem told you that they love you and that you, of all people, bring them the greatest joy. This is exactly what we find in our passage this morning. 3 John is a pastoral letter of encouragement from John the Apostle to his disciple Gaius as he faithfully follows the Lord. He writes to commend Gaius for his hospitality to missionaries and encourages him to be wary of bad apples and pursue those saints who are worthy of imitation. Our passage this morning paints a beautiful picture of Christian friendship and pastoral ministry as love, joy, and truth combine. And as we enter the new year, I hope that we can take away from these four verses examples of how to love one another, how to pray for one another, and how to bring joy to one another. So we have three points of exhortation from the text this morning, if you're taking notes. Point number one, strive to see God's people through God's eyes. Point number two, Strive to have a biblical view of prosperity and health. Point number three, strive to walk in the truth. So point number one, strive to see God's people through God's eyes. Uh, This letter begins, like all letters should, with an introduction. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. The elder is the Apostle John, though his name is not mentioned in this letter. And I just want to take a second to remind you of some highlights from John's long life. John was there with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. He was called out of a boat to follow Christ. He witnessed Signs and wonders. He was there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He was there at the transfiguration. He sat under Jesus' teaching day after day, living life with him. He was sent to prepare the upper room for the Last Supper. And he fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was supposed to be keeping watch for Jesus. He was there in the shadow of the cross with Mary, and he was there when Christ came back from the dead. And then after Christ's ascension, he faithfully helped to establish the church. He calls himself elder, and that title is fitting for John, in in two main ways. Elder is a reference to the position of elder. He was a pastor. We see that title first appear in the book of Acts, starting in chapter 11. John was at the Jerusalem council with the other apostles and elders in Acts 15, where the early church rightly interpreted Christ's teaching that the gospel is not just for ethnic Israel, but it's also for Gentiles like you and me, that we can be adopted into the people of God. According to tradition, John then went to Ephesus and he pastored a church that Paul established. And John lived long enough to see the other apostles martyred, leaving only himself, the elder. 
Which brings me to the second way that elder is a fitting term for him. He's old. Uh, scholars believe that this book was written between 85 and 95 A.D., or roughly 60 years after the earthly ministry of Christ. So he would have been in his 90s when he wrote this letter to Gaius. And he was still doing ministry. He is an excellent example to us that serving the Lord and loving one another is a lifelong pursuit. And you are just as valuable to the church whether you're 20 or 70 or 95 years old. We need all of us uh, to be walking in health as a body. An early Christian writer, Jerome, recorded in the 5th century commentary on Galatians that when John could no longer walk for himself, he would be carried into the church by his disciples. And he spoke only the words, little children love one another. And when he was asked why he never said anything else, he replied, because it's the Lord's command. And if this only is done, it's enough. Love one another. Oh, that this kind of enduring faithfulness would be true of you and me. If we could be like John. So John is, he's a hero. Who is Gaius? Who's the recipient of this encouragement from John? Is he some well-known, well-connected saint? A future all-star of the faith? We don't see a lot of Gaiuses today, but Gaius was the most common name in the Roman Empire at this time. And that's reflected in Scripture. There's four different Gaiuses who are named in Scripture. In Acts 19, there's a reference to Gaius of Macedonia, Paul's traveling companion. Acts 20, a different Gaius from Derby is mentioned. In Romans 16, a hospitable Gaius in Corinth hosted the Apostle Paul. But John's Gaius is, according to tradition, settled in or near Ephesus. So this Gaius is no one special. It's just a common man with a common name. And yet here he is, receiving a letter of encouragement from the Apostle John, the last apostle, telling him how much joy he brings to him. I can only imagine how much encouragement Gaius felt when he received this letter. John refers to Gaius as beloved, whom he loves in truth. And in this first point, I want to look at what he means by this and how it should shape the way that we view one another. What does it mean to be beloved? Well, it means to be loved, but it's, it's more than that. It means to be cherished, to be precious to someone, to be favored. By calling him the beloved, John could be referring to a few things all at once. As a Christian, Gaius is beloved by God. In verses 3 and 4, we learn that Gaius' good reputation precedes him. So John could be referring to his standing in the community. He is beloved by the saints. But John also says that he personally loves Gaius in truth. Truth is a common theme in John's writings. 
So we need to remember his definition of truth is going to come up a bunch this morning. In John 14, 6, he writes, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth. He is the true means, the only means of salvation. And John's love for Gaius is rooted in the gospel truth. John loves Gaius for the same reason that God does, because he's in Christ. And this has to be our motivation for loving one another. Those who know the truth, specifically the truth about who God is and how he has provided salvation, love that truth and love others who embrace that truth. People who are changed by truth seek to live out the truth and rejoice to see others living out the truth. Just as John does here. I love you because you're in Christ. I care about how you're doing, how your work is going, how school is going for you because you are in Christ. I care about your prayer life. I care about your struggles in parenting because you're in Christ. I care about your marriage or your singleness because you are in Christ. It's not because we cheer on the same sports team or because we live in proximity to one another or we like the same shows on TV. These things can help us to make connections, but they're not what unite us. They cannot be our primary motivation for loving one another. They can't be your primary criteria for who you choose to spend time with, who you choose to reach out to, or who you choose to give care to in this body. Our motivation to love one another in this church has to be the bond that we share in Christ. Belief in the truth of the gospel unites us, not convenience. So when I ask how you're doing, I'm expecting you to give me a real meaty response. Give me some substance. And uh, if, I, if you ask me how I'm doing and I give you a weak response like, oh, I'm doing good, uh, please call me out. <laughs> Challenge me. Dig deeper. Let's be willing to have awkward conversations with one another in the foyer or uh, at our seats after the service. Let's do it until those conversations become natural and we've built up familiarity with one another because, after all, we're a family. If we have nothing else in common, at least we share the same hope in the truth of the gospel. And, and that's enough to love one another completely. We don't need anything more than that. This also means that we have to fight to believe the best in one another. That, that's our default position to assume the best in one another. We show favor to one another. I have to fight to trust that the Spirit is working in my brother when my knee-jerk reaction might be to be suspicious of his motives or his actions. 
We're called to watch over each other and care for one another. But we also need to extend grace to one another in the midst of that. So you might say, I reached out to this sister and she never got back to me. Or she keeps putting off getting together. She must must not really care about me. She must not really love me. Maybe that's true. But we have to be careful not to make assumptions or assign motives when we don't know what's going on. Maybe they're not responding because maybe it's not about you at all. Maybe they're going through a really hard time. Maybe they're struggling. Maybe they need you to reach out and care for them. Brothers and sisters, we need to believe the best in each other. And one way that we can help each other is by being transparent with one another, sharing our trials and our struggles. So we know how to care for each other, how to pray for one another, but also so that we can help one another to assume the best. It's easier to assume the best if I know what's going on in your life, if I know what you're going through. So we need to strive to see each other as people with the Holy Spirit working in us. We need to see each other as God sees us in Christ as beloved. My Father loves you. I need to love you too. And Christian, not only do you need to see each other as beloved by God, but you have to see yourself as beloved by God. You are beloved. When you look in the mirror, do you only see your sin and guilt and shame? If you're in Christ, that's not what God sees in you. Do you know that you're lovely? And not because of what you've done or what you do or what you will do, but because Christ sees you as valuable enough to have suffered and died in your place. And that work is finished. We can't add to it by doing good deeds. We can't make ourselves any lovelier than we already are to God. Because if you've repented and believed in Christ, and if he is the Lord of your life, then when God looks at you, he sees only Christ's perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience. Do you know that you're lovely? God looks at you as a perfect father looks at a dearly loved child. So don't carry the weight of your past sin any longer. If you need to repent, then repent. But if you've sought forgiveness from the Lord and from those you've sinned against, that burden is no longer yours to carry. You're forgiven. You've given that burden to Jesus and you're to take his yoke upon you, which is light and brings peace. If you're like me, sometimes you get flashes of past sin that can cross your mind. It can be really discouraging. If you've already repented of this to God, then then this is not godly sorrow that you're feeling. This is accusation from Satan who is trying to bring you down. 
trying to throw you off the narrow path. He wants to weaken you, to sow doubt in you. Doubt of your assurance. Doubt of the efficacy of what Christ has done. He wants to hinder your growth in holiness. So my encouragement to you this morning is to take power, take hold of the power of your identity in Christ. The old self is gone. You have been born again. You are beloved. Your brothers and sisters in this body are beloved. And we must remember this as we live closely together because we're going to sin against one another. We're going to irritate one another. We're going to let each other down. But we have to strive to see each other in this way and love one another as we pursue life together in this body. So that's point number one. Strive to see God's people through God's eyes. Point number two. Strive to have a biblical view of prosperity and health. Verse 2, John writes, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. It was common in ancient Greek letters to wish the recipient success and good health. And this is something that we pray for all the time. I think the overwhelming majority of prayer requests that I've heard since I became a Christian 18 years ago is for success in an endeavor or for good health or for healing. And we see by John's example that this is good and right to pray for these things. He loves Gaius. He wants to see him flourish in his body and mind and soul. We should follow his example and pray for these things for each other and for ourselves. Many brave souls among us have probably made resolutions for the new year that involve taking steps to improve your health. Maybe you haven't. Resolutions to exercise more regularly, to eat more healthily, to quit bad practices that are negatively affecting our health, drop the junk food, cut out sugar, these kinds of things. John prays to God for good health for Gaius because he knows that God is sovereign over Gaius' health, over his success, over his life. So as you embark on resolutions to make improvements to, you, uh, to your uh, diet or your behavior, my encouragement to you is to begin with prayer. Don't set out on these goals alone. Consult the one who has control over your health. Why do so many resolutions get left in the month of January? Well, I think it's because, at least for Christians, we're not starting out with prayer. We're not grounding these goals in prayer. We're not seeking God for his help. And another reason is that we set out with wrong motivations. We're bombarded every day by promises from the world that our problems in our lives will be solved by improving our health. The health and fitness industry is big business in the United States. It's predicted that the fitness industry will generate $81.5 billion in revenue in the next year. It's full of empty promises. Follow this diet plan or take this pill. 
the weight will come off and you'll feel better and everything will be better in your life and you'll be happier. The problem with this is that the chief end of man is not his own happiness or comfort. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we were made to do. So what does Scripture say about health? How can we ground ourselves in Scripture as we're making these resolutions? Well, it says surprisingly little. You would think that God would have given us a clear teaching on exercise, but there's, there's no exhortations to exercise in Scripture. A common text to look to is Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 6.19, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The context for that is abstaining from sexual immorality. We don't want to join our bodies with a prostitute. We don't want to join our bodies to sexual immorality. We have the Holy Spirit in us. But I think, I think it naturally follows that if these bodies of ours house a person of the triune God, we should take the best care of them that we can. Think of it like this. One of the great benefits of hosting people to your house is that you're motivated to clean and keep things tidy because you want to honor your guests. Hopefully that's your motivation. You want to honor the people who are coming to your house by presenting a home that's put together, that's comfortable for them. If this is true, if this is what we do when we're hosting, how much more should we care for our bodies when we know that the guest is God? We're called to eat and drink to the glory of God, which means we do that with great pleasure and enjoyment, but also with moderation. We're to abstain from drunkenness, which damages the body. So we're responsible to steward the unique bodies that God has given us, to use them for good purposes, God-honoring purposes. God gave us the bodies that we have to enjoy what he's made, to exercise dominion over the earth, and to serve him and his people. To do that well, we have to take care of them to the best of our abilities, through exercise, through discipline, through self-control. So if you're making resolutions this year, do it with right, biblically grounded motivations. We should desire and pursue good health because it honors God, because it enables us to better fulfill Christ's command to love our neighbor. And I think that this is John's desire for Gaius, that his health would enable him to continue to walk in the truth and to serve the church well. When you're healthy, you can be more consistent, more available to serve your family, your church, your neighbors, Why should we desire financial success? Should we? Well, because then we can buy all the things? No. Because it allows us to be generous. It allows us to give. It frees us up to serve. And the reality is that we're not promised good health or success by God. And we have to wrestle with that reality. And we have to accept that. Otherwise, we can be led down a path to a whole host of sins. God doesn't owe you a pain-free life. He's not withholding good from you because you're in a season of sickness. 
You are beloved. He works all things for the good of those who love him, even poor health and poverty. And it, it can be difficult to see that sometimes, especially in you, when you are in the midst of the valley. Some of us have physical challenges that we will carry with us the rest of our lives. If you have prolonged pain or discomfort or illness, God has given you something to sustain you in this short life. He has promised to never leave you or forsake you. And he has given you the promise of eternal life. The hope of a new resurrected body that will never weaken, that will never know pain or hunger or anxiety. Can you imagine that? God is faithful to his promises. He will provide what is needful for you this day. He will provide what is needful for you in this short life. And then he will sustain you until you are with him forever. I want to go back to the text. John says, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. This prayer is, is amazing because John is praying that Gaius' physical health might be as good as his spiritual health. In other words, his spiritual health is better than his physical health. Is your spiritual health better than your physical health? If you're not a Christian, I'm glad that you're here with us. I have to tell you the truth of what the Bible says about your spiritual state. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that you are spiritually dead in your sins. And this was true for everyone in this room at one point. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. If you put your faith in Christ, you will be made spiritually alive. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, as long as we continue in this life, we have to cultivate our spiritual health as we continue to be made more and more like Jesus. So what, what would it look like if your physical health mirrored your spiritual health? Unfortunately, I think many Christians would be desperately sick if their physical health mirrored their spiritual health. Are you taking measures to care for both your physical and your spiritual health? Are you just going through the motions? How are you pursuing godliness in your life now? Hear this exhortation from Paul. He writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 10. He says, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. Beloved, your spiritual health is far more important than your physical health. 
How is your relationship with God? What's the quality of your prayer life? Are you praying regularly? Nothing can replace the the actual relationship work of talking to God, meditating on his word, and, and actually taking the time to apply what he says through the word and through the preaching that you're sitting under, applying it to your life, doing something with it. Sometimes five minutes is all we have to sit quietly or read a passage of scripture. It can feel like, what's the point? But five minutes can be enough if we're able to take away a truth to meditate on for the rest of the day. We have got to prioritize time in the Word in 2023. If you've struggled to do so, can you ask God to help you with this today? They say it takes 21 days for a habit to stick. Grab someone here, ask them to help you by holding you accountable. Whether it's new physical or spiritual habits, set achievable goals, and begin working towards them today. If this is the third year in a row that you're trying to read the Bible in a year, maybe we set our sights lower. <laughs> maybe we aim a little lower and we go for reading a book a month or just being in the Word every day and we don't set that big goal of finishing the whole Bible in a year. The Word and prayer are our spiritual nourishment. Your spiritual health will be anemic without them regularly in your diet. You will never be able to say that your spiritual health has surpassed your physical health without regularly practicing personal spiritual disciplines. So beloved, we must have a biblical view of prosperity and health as we pray for one another. Point number three, Strive to walk in the truth. Verses 3 and 4 say, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you're walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John's been visited by Christians who'd recently been to Gaius' church. These brothers came with a great report of the faithfulness of Gaius' Christian life. This means his life was evidence of his faithfulness to live out the gospel. Living out the gospel means allowing your decision-making and the way that you treat others to be shaped by the gospel truth. Walking in the truth means leading a life that is consistent with the truth you believe. If you believe the Bible, is your life consistent with what it teaches? This is Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not just interpreting the law, he's encouraging us to be whole people. What's happening in our inner life is just as important as our outer life that our beliefs and our actions would be in step with one another, that there would be no phoniness or concealment of our true selves. We would live in such a way that transparency is easy for us. Is it easy for you to be transparent with others? 
Our words and our actions must line up with each other. That is walking in the truth. When English Baptist preacher of the late 1800s, Charles, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, preached on this verse, he remarked, what is it to walk in truth? It's a great thing to hear our people, of our people that they are abiding in the truth as they have been taught. But to walk in truth means something more. It signifies action in consistency with truth. If you believe that you are fallen, walk in consistency with that truth by watching your fallen nature and walking humbly with God. Do you believe that there's one God? Walk in that truth and reverence him and none beside. Do you believe in election? Prove that you are elect. Walk in truth as the chosen peculiar people of God zealous for good works. Do you believe in redemption? Is that a fundamental truth with you? Walk in it, for ye are not your own. You're bought with a price. Walk in consistency with what you believe. The fact that John is hearing about Gaius' faithfulness implies that people talked about the way that Gaius lived. And likewise, people will talk about the way that you live. It's just a it's just a fact of life. When others look at your life, other brothers and sisters or even unbelievers, can they give this same report of your life, that you're walking in the truth? We shouldn't be living to please other people, but we, we live to please God. We should strive to live in such a way that people are able to testify to our faithfulness to the truth of Christ. Not only must we strive to walk in truth, but we have to watch each other's lives. We should follow John's example and rejoice when we see our brothers and sisters growing in godliness. You don't have to be John the Apostle or Lionel Messi or John Piper to make a big impact on someone by speaking an encouraging word to them. Sending an encouraging text to someone. Do that this week. Tell them how you're praying that things go well for them and that they, they might be in good health. Let's acknowledge God's grace working in our midst, working in one another, and let's rejoice, as John does, over Gaius' life. We should rejoice when we hear that our sisters overcome fear or our brother has put away sin or when brothers and sisters take steps of faith to share the gospel on the street. If you've been feeling like there's not much joy in your life, here is a source for you. Tap into it. There's so much cause for us to rejoice in one another and what God is doing in each of us. In verse 4, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. He refers to Gaius as one of his children. He uses that expression a lot in the Gospel of John and also in 1 John. Um, here he calls Gaius his child. He's either referring to his role as a pastor to Gaius, acting as a spiritual father to him, or that he was a direct part of Gaius' conversion. But either way, 
I just have to share what a joy it is as a pastor to see our people walking in the truth and living out the gospel. As I was reflecting on the idea of spiritual fatherhood, I became convicted. I wonder if those who were instrumental in bringing me uh, to faith, bringing the gospel to me, encouraging me to faith and repentance, I wonder if they know how I'm doing. Do they know what their labors have yielded? I can't help but to think that there's joy that could be theirs if I just reached out and gave them an update, sent them a letter, gave them a phone call. John has this joy in Gaius because he knows how God has used his labor in Gaius. What encouragement would the youth pastor who started investing in me 18 years ago receive knowing that I'm here (laughs) pastoring a church? preaching about him and what he did in my life. Brian and Drew can testify with me that hearing how a teaching has impacted someone's walk uh, or how it's impacted their understanding of God's word is immensely encouraging and motivating for your pastors. Continue to apply the teaching that you hear from this pulpit on Sunday mornings. And don't forget to share with your brothers, with your pastors, how you're growing, how you're impacted. Ministry has a heavy weight that comes with it. When you become an elder, you don't just carry the burden of your own sins and failings anymore, but you get to carry the burdens and the sins of all those who are under your care. And we're all very good at sinning. The flip side is that as pastors, we also get to rejoice with you in your joys and share in your victories over sin. So increase your brother's joy by sharing God's grace working in you. As a parent, the possibility of seeing my children walking in the truth is almost too wonderful. (laughs) One of the highest joys for any parent must be to see their children loving God cherishing Christ. To be able to call your child your brother or your sister in Christ. It's one of my deepest desires and long-standing hopes is that one day I'll get to baptize my children. And those who've had this pleasure can testify to the immense joy that John's talking about here. No greater joy, he says, Parents, this is why we labor to train our children up in the way. Not so that we teach them to respect our authority or to provide them structure. And not that we can save them by our efforts or our winsomeness. We know that faith can only come by hearing the truth of the gospel. We know that salvation is by faith alone. But our, our, our goal in parenting, the goal of our effort is great joy. So don't lose heart. Continue to lead your children in repentance, to lead them in prayer, 
to lead them in singing songs to the Lord as they see you reveling in his majesty? They will see his surpassing worth. Demonstrate walking in truth by your own example. When you sin against your kids, repent to God and to them quickly. Seek forgiveness. Point them to the gospel. If you have an unbelieving spouse, demonstrate walking in truth by your own example. Seek forgiveness. Repent quickly to them. Point them to the gospel. If you're someone who's not made up your mind about Christ and you were hoping to hear this morning that Jesus is the solution to all of your problems, I'm sorry to say that he's not, at least not in this life, at least not the problems that you might be thinking of. There are no promises for health and wealth and prosperity here. But it's my joy to tell you that he is the solution to your biggest problem, the only problem that really matters, your sin. This is the truth, that all men have fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. Sin has separated us from God. But at the right time, he sent his son to be born, fully God and fully man, that he might fix our sin problem. Jesus lived a perfect life. He suffered and died to take the punishment that we rightly deserve for our sin. He gave us his perfect righteousness instead. And he offers you spiritual life that can begin today. You can walk in truth this morning by confessing your sins to God. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He offers you forgiveness today. He offers you freedom from guilt and from shame. He offers you an eternal life that cannot be corrupted. So some final words of application for us this morning. John rightly sees Gaius as beloved by God. And he loves him because of the truth of the gospel. As we are living together, members of one body, we must follow his example and seek to love one another. We do this by seeing each other rightly, seeing each other and ourselves as sinners saved by grace who have the Spirit. We have to strive to have a right view of God and right expectations of him as our Father and the giver of all things. We must pray for each other and desire the best for each other. We must rejoice in one another as we grow in godliness. Beloved, in, in 2023, let's strive to walk in these truths that we believe.